You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. Take your Bibles with me and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'm going to take a, a little break from the book of Romans for the next couple weeks. Let me ask you a question as you're turning there. And that is, who in your life has the right to tell you how to live. Who is it in your life that has the right to tell you how to live? If you're a child, the answer to that question is fairly simple. Your parents do. At least I would hope that you think that. As adults, the question is a little bit more complicated. When we get to to the word live there, In my question, there's some vagueness. In other words, who has the right to tell you how to worship? Make it more specific. Who has the right to tell you how to order your priorities in your home and your family? Who has the right to tell you how to interact with your neighbors? Who has the right to tell you what is appropriate behavior and what is not? We all understand that God has that right. And we would answer that way, but there's also a real way in which we decide those things for ourselves, don't we? For instance, and I just bring this up to make a point, the author of Hebrews, for instance, tells us that we ought not neglect the gathering together in the church. We know that church is important, yet who makes the final decision as what constitutes neglecting the gathering? If we have something else going on, our thought is that we can go to church every week, but we can only go to such and such activity once a year or whatever it is. I wonder, though, if we gather weekly, sometimes multiple times weekly, it is because we need to. And God had a reason for that frequency. Is it actually arrogant to suggest that we do not need together? I bring this up not to bash people that skip church. I'll leave that in your own conscience as to whether you are neglecting the gathering or not. My point, and please don't miss it, is who speaks into our lives on these issues? Who is it that makes that final decision? How do we decide? We say that God has the right. We know that's the correct answer, but does he or do we? Here's another one since I picked on some of you because I'm in church every week. I'll pick on myself a little bit. I asked the question earlier about who has the right to order the priorities in our home and our family. We would say God does. In fact, God is clear on how parents 
or to have that responsibility in their homes to teach their children of the, of the faith. We see this played out in the New Testament. Timothy's mother and grandmother raised him in the scriptures. We have a responsibility that to hand on the faith that has to pass on the faith that has been delivered to us as of first importance. And then we take what is first importance that has been passed on to us and pass it to others. The Old Testament tells us in Deuteronomy 6 that parents are to talk with their children when they wake up, when they go to bed, when they're traveling about these things. Teach them the faith. I'll be honest. I mean, we send our kids to Sunday school, to Christian school, but those things are actually an extension of the family. It's ultimately our responsibility. They wake up with us. They go to bed with us. They travel with us. And I struggle in this area. My point is, when we say God has the right to speak into this area, we agree with what is said in scriptures. But when it really comes down to it, we decide how much devotional time we decide how much family worship time is appropriate. We're the ones that go about our daily routine, and we're the ones that our daily routine doesn't include passing the faith to our children. Or we say something like, well, I live out my faith in front of my kids. My kids will see that, and of course that is good. But is it obedient to the scriptures in this area? Again, who has the right to speak authoritatively into our lives on these issues? Are we the ultimate authority or not? I would suggest that we do more than we would readily admit. I just bring this up at the onset here to try to give us a sense of the weight of the scriptures that are before us this morning. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 9. So if you would stand with me as we, we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices deviation or tells fortunes or interprets omens or is a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God 
or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will rise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of another God, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, the word does not come to pass or come true. That is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we speak about, as we, as we think about listening this morning, more specifically, as we think about whom we are to listen, Lord, I pray that you would work this morning. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. I pray that we would understand your word, that you would make it clear to us that your word this morning would seek to exalt Jesus Christ and, and that we would listen to him, that he would be our, our prophet, that he would be all that we need and we don't look for, for other things, for guidance, but we look to you because you are enough. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Before we get into this text a lot, I want to give you the, the main point of it for us to, to grasp today. And we'll, we'll get there, but I just want to give it to you right up, right up front. And that is that Jesus isn't just another prophet. He is the prophet. He is the prophet that will end all prophets. We'll get there. To our text, just catch what is happening here. These people are preparing to go into the land that God has promised them. And in Deuteronomy, what we have is really the law it repeated, or the law uh, repeated a second time. In fact, that's what the word Deuteronomy means. The law repeated, or second law. Many people have died over the past 40 years in the wilderness. Now the nation is going to, to take this land. They're getting prepared to go in there. The people know that they're going to have challenges. The land is inhabited, but they also know that the Lord has promised it to them, that they're going to go and they're going to, they're going to take it. He's going to provide for them. They know this because the Lord has been speaking to them and telling them this. How has the Lord been speaking and telling them this? Through Moses, God's prophet. Moses was unique. Not everybody was Moses. Moses was Moses. The people had a, a direct line to God through Moses. Moses would bring God's word to them, and he would also go to God on their behalf. When they sinned against God, for instance, and provoked God to anger, it was Moses who stepped in and pled with them because he could go to God and talk to God on their behalf. Numbers 14 
For instance, starting in verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with pestilence and I will disinherit them and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they are. That's what God is saying to Moses. Then in the next several verses, Moses is interceding for the people. And in verse nine, he says this, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as, have, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses was God's prophet. He spoke on behalf of God to the people. He spoke to God on behalf of the people. Now in this text, God is in the midst of instructing the people how to live in the land that he is giving them. And he's doing this all through Moses. It isn't intuition. It isn't other things. It's all through Moses. It's a repeating of the law through Moses, and the people are intelligent. They know that people don't live forever. They know that there will be a day, and it is rapidly approaching, that Moses will pass away. And if Moses passes away, the question in all of their minds is, how are we going to hear from God? If Moses is gone, how will God speak? This had to be a genuine concern for the people, because as we have said, it was, it was in Moses that the people not only heard from God, not only heard what God desired of them and wanted from them, but it was in Moses that they had this unique relationship with God because of their status as, as a nation. That nation had a unique relationship with God, and it was centered around God's prophet, Moses, the go-between between God and the people. And Mo when Moses died, what would happen? Certainly, here, we read, Moses is assuring the people that he won't be the last prophet. Certainly, a, a plain reading of this text points to that reality. Moses would die. This was on the minds of the people. Therefore, Moses assures them that there will be a prophet after him that God will speak to, and the people will hear from God through this prophet that is coming. We know this was true. God continued to speak to the people through prophets. People depended on prophets to hear from God. That's how we see it in the Old Testament. God raises up a prophet. The people hear from God through the prophet. I want you to see this. God is the one that has the right to tell his creatures how to live. And he did this through prophets. He did it through Moses. Just back up for a moment. In the text, go back to verse 9. So Moses is telling he's going to raise up a prophet. But we go back before that, God speaking to Moses on the behavior of the people when they get into the land that God promised them. The land is inhabited, and they're not to be like the people who dwelt in the land. Just listen to this again, what the Lord says here. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving to you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations 
There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices deviation. Anyone who tells fortunes or interprets omens, a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. I'll stop there. It's actually really good context to what Moses says next about sending a prophet after him after he is gone because in Moses' absence, the people might be tempted to look around them at the people around them and inquire the same way that they do to get answers, to get guidance. How do the nations around us, how do these people, how do they get a message from God? How do they get guidance? We did it through Moses, but we don't have Moses anymore. Maybe we ought to copy the practices of of these people and look at how they do it. They inquire of the dead. Maybe we should inquire of the dead. Look how they interact with the supernatural. Maybe we ought to interact with the supernatural the same way they do. They go so far as to sacrifice their children to appease the gods. Maybe we should do that. Maybe we should earn the favor with God the same way they do. If it's worked for them, maybe it'll work for us. And here God is clearly saying through his prophet, you do not do that. You don't do that. You don't do those things. We do not not kill our children. God is not pleased with that. God hates that. God abhors that. And of course, the modern Christian can't read that without thinking about abortion, the abomination of our day. Just as it was an abomination to God in those days, killing children is always an abomination. Notice that the people in the land that God is giving them are child killers. They're not just child killers there. They offer their children as sacrifices. This means they're doing it for some reason, and it has to do with hearing from God. It has to do with appeasing God in in some way. Want to be right with God? Give up your child as a sacrifice, as if God would take pleasure in that. He doesn't. But there's other ways that that people wanted direction and guidance from the supernatural. Kent Hughes calls this list in in verses 10 through 12 a, a comprehensive list of practices that are condemned. He says, first, there's offering one's children as an offering and notes that this is in some way supposed to get guidance from the gods. The next three items here, deviation, or telling fortunes and interpreting omens are methods of seeking divine wisdom, predicting the future. And omens are giving a reason for the events that are taking place in your life. Hugh says the next two methods, sorcery and charmery, these have to do with magic, with the intention of influencing events or other persons by the use of supernatural methods. Sometimes we think of, of these things as being used to harm others, but that's not what's in in, in mind here. It should be noted that most likely what's happening here is that this reference to sorcery and charm, this magic, is used to actually help others. And others are, are helped through the practice of these things. And he said, you can't do this. This is not what we do. The next three have to do with communicating with others in order to bring a message. A medium is one who communicates information, informa- communicates information from non-physical beings, such as 
spirits or demons or false gods. A necromancer is one who communicates with the dead in order to get guidance or help. A spiritist is one who inquires of the dead. The ESV there just gives the, the definition of that. And I'm not sure what exactly the distinction is there. In one instance, a physical body may be used. In the other, it may be just more of an inquiry of the dead. My point in bringing all this up is, is not to, to list in great detail about these forbidden practices, but to point out that these people wanted guidance from the supernatural and they were willing to go to great lengths to get it. Kill their children, inquire, the demon, inquire of demons and talk to the dead. God's point is clear, absolutely clear. When you go into the land that God will give you and Moses dies, you will not have to resort to these abominable practices to hear from God. God will raise up another prophet. He will put his words in the mouth of another and you will hear from God. That's how God is going to work and we see that played out in the Old Testament. That's how he works. He puts his words in the mouth of another. At this point, there's something that we just can't ignore, and that is how we, even God's people, have a tendency to look further or to look to other things for guidance, to look past God's word. We think we're raised in, in church. We know better. We would never resort to the other methods in hearing from God. Just as these people from, from Israel, I'm sure they said, we're going into this land and, they, and these people do these things? They talk to the dead, they inquire of demons, they kill their children to get messages from God? We would never do that. No, read the Old Testament, they did that. So the question really that we must ask here is, okay, how do we hear from God today? If, if, this is what, if this is how they heard from God back then, they weren't supposed to resort to other methods from hearing God, just as we're not supposed to resort to other methods in hearing from God. The question that we need to ask is, how do we hear from God today? Certainly there's not a prophet like Moses today, is there? Although some claim to be one central figure that God speaks to the people through to hear from God, certainly we recognize that we have the Bible. The Bible changes things. In fact, it changes things drastically. If you would, take your Bibles and flip over to the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1. Just start in the, the first verse there. Long ago, at many times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So this is a reference to Moses, those who would certainly come after him. The situation that we're talking about in Deuteronomy 18 is in view here. That when Moses dies, God puts his words in the mouth of another and that people do not have to resort to other means in hearing from God or inquiring of God, for God detests that. How did God speak to his people throughout the entire Old Testament? 
through his prophets long ago. That's how God did it. We keep reading there in verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, who he appointed the heir of all things. Through him, he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So does God speak to his people today the same way he did in Deuteronomy 18 and the rest of the Old Testament? According to the author of Hebrews, the answer is clearly no. He speaks through his son, who embodies God's glory perfectly and is the word of God made flesh. Turn to John 16, or you can just listen. Here we really see what the author of Hebrews is is getting at, I believe, when he says that in these last days, God speaks to us through his, his son. In John 16, 13, Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, this is the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. Stop there for a moment, going back to Deuteronomy 18. How did God guide the people there into all truth? Not through diviners, not through mediums or any of those other things, but through prophets whom God put his word in their mouths. Jesus is saying that the spirit of God will guide you into all truth, a fundamental change. But we need to keep reading. The spirit will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus, for he will take what is mine, Jesus's, and declare it to you. So understand this. The Spirit of God takes the words of Christ, declares them to us. The Spirit of God takes the words of God and declares them to his people. This is what the author of Hebrews means when he says that God speaks to us through his Son. How does all this work out? 2 Peter chapter 1, speaking of the scriptures and how they came about. Just notice this. Just notice how Peter speaks of this process. Start in verse 20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, so notice that, that scripture is prophecy, And it does not come from somebody's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God's words coming out of their mouths, out of their pens, through the means of the Holy Spirit working through them. Spirit of God, putting words of God, words of Christ, who the fullness of the God dwells in the mouths and pens of the authors of Scripture. When the author of Hebrews tells us that in the last days, in our day, God speaks through his Son, he's making reference to the Scriptures. In other words, what we have here is God's Word. It isn't a book that contains God's word. It isn't words about the word. As somebody said recently. These aren't words about the word. This is the word of God. Verse 
The Spirit of God puts the words of God, the words of Christ, in the mouths, the pens of the authors of Scripture. And when the author of Hebrews tells us that in the last days, in our day, God speaks to his Son, it's this word. We don't have Moses and the prophets like the people had in the Old Testament times, but we have Scripture. We have this, which is everything that we need. Over and over, we read this. In 2 Peter 1, 3, we read that the Spirit has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we read that the Scriptures are God's Word, His very breath, and they are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The scriptures are said here to be profitable to make the man of God complete. Notice that language. The man, the woman of God, it makes them complete. Tell me, what more then do we need? You want to know the, the statement that I hear so often these days that just really irritates me. And that is when we hear a, a preacher or somebody say something like, I received a, a fresh word from God today. Fresh word? You, you a prophet now that God is putting his words in your mouth? Because when somebody says that, they're saying, God spoke to me, now you ought to listen because this is authoritative. How else can it mean anything? How can it mean anything else? It can't. I received a fresh word from God today, therefore you need it. We need a fresh word from God today. Why? Because then it'll be authoritative. That should, irrit that should irritate us. When somebody says that, I, I try and give them the, the benefit of the doubt, and, and sometimes people are just using a poor choice of words, and I, and I get that. But other times, most times in our day, People are saying that we need to hear something from God apart from Scripture. Yeah, it must agree with Scripture. My friends, that's irrelevant. If, it, if it's apart from Scripture but it agrees with Scripture, that's irrelevant. What the, the necromancer hears from the dead might agree with Scripture, but it is irrelevant in that the practice is an abomination to God. It doesn't make the practice any less of an abomination. The fact is, we do not need a fresh word. We have his word to us. Everything we need for life and godliness. That the man of God might be complete, to say we need more, to hear it differently, is something that God abhors. In theology, we call this doctrine the sufficiency of Scripture. The Scriptures are sufficient. They're all we need. They are enough. Just as God's word to the people of Israel was enough when they were going into that land and they were facing those issues, it was enough. They didn't need to look outside. They didn't need to look at how the other people communicated with people around them. They were to look to God's word that he put in the mouth of the prophet because that's how God worked back then. 
That was enough. God would give them what was sufficient through his prophet. And in the text we read in in Deuteronomy 18, God wouldn't leave leave them without his word. And he has not left us without his word. In fact, we have everything we need for life and godliness. That the man or woman of God might be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want to to highlight this, this idea of the sufficiency of scripture this point that we don't need fresh words and special so-called words from God today in that the text we are talking about in Deuteronomy 18 has both near and far implications. What I mean by that is that the prophet that Moses says will come here is going to be fulfilled after Moses dies. God is not going to leave the people alone without his word to them. We talked about this. This is how God worked in the Old Testament. But we also need to understand that this text has messianic implications as well, pointing to a day in which God's word to us will be through his Messiah. His word to us. And of course, we know that his word to us is the scriptures. One reason that I know my interpretation there of Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 is correct is because of this text in Deuteronomy 18. Of course, as we mentioned earlier, the natural way of reading this text is to interpret it to refer to the line of prophets that God sends Israel after Moses dies. Even though, notice, one prophet is mentioned in the text in Deuteronomy 18. This reading is correct, but we also must realize that we use the Scriptures to interpret the Scriptures. Now, between the Old and New Testaments, there was 400 years of silence. And what we mean by that is that there was about 400 years where God didn't put his words in the mouth of any prophet. There was no prophet. And the idea began to grow among the Israelites that this passage that we're talking about in Deuteronomy 18 was indeed talking about a single prophet that was to come. By the first century, the passage was given a a messianic interpretation by many groups. This is why in John chapter 1, verse 21, the people asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? They didn't say, are you a prophet that has come? Are you finally a prophet that God is going to put his words in his mouth? Are you a prophet? No, they asked him, are you the prophet? The one mentioned in Deuteronomy 18, I would say. Of course, he said no. In John 16, 16, when the people saw the, the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Not a prophet, the prophet. They're expecting one prophet who God was going to put his words in his mouth. These people understand that there was to come a prophet that would speak the word of God, but they didn't get, however, that this would be God himself, God in flesh. John 7, 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah. I would suggest that Jesus is speaking about himself as a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18 when he, when he wrote in John 5, when John wrote 5, 
46, Jesus said, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. That's a reference to this text. Peter interpreted the passage of Deuteronomy 18 as a reference to Jesus Christ as clear as day. Acts chapter 3, verse 22, as he quotes this text as a reference to Jesus. You can't get any more clear than that. This text in Deuteronomy 18 points to Jesus. How do we know that? Because it's quoted by Peter, pointing to Jesus. Acts chapter 7, verse 37, Stephen, in his message, quotes the same passage in reference to Jesus. What do we make of this? Pretty simple. God doesn't speak to us the same way he did in the Old Testament. In that he doesn't raise up prophet after prophet. Jesus was the prophet who would end all prophets. In other words, these other prophets were prophets with a a little p, and Jesus is the prophet with a capital P. He is the prophet. He's a a fulfillment of, of all what is to come. All these other prophets in the Old Testament pointed to the one true prophet that was to come. Everything that we need for life and godliness, that we might be complete and equipped for every good work, is found in this prophet's word to us. Everything. I'm sure that some of us have heard, most of us have heard of of the offices of Christ. And if I said that phrase, you would know what I meant. When we speak of Christ, he's, he's our prophet, he's our priest, he's our king. What we're talking about this morning is Jesus is our prophet. He is the prophet. He's not just one in the line of many. He's the prophet. So leading up to Christmas, we're going to take a brief look at at these offices of Christ. Today, Jesus is a prophet. He fulfills the role of Moses. He speaks to his own. He is the eternal word of God. He's the one who spoke through Moses, right? He's the eternal word of God throughout all the history. It's Jesus that is speaking. He spoke through Moses today. He speaks to us through his word. The coming of Christ in the little town of Bethlehem changed everything as the author of Hebrews says in the first chapter. So what are the implications of Jesus being the prophet with a capital P? I would say it's simple. He has the right to tell us how to live. Just as God, through Moses, had the right to tell the people how to live in the land that he was giving to them, so Jesus, in his word, has the right to tell his people how to live in this world. And our job is to submit to it. That's the question we started with. Who has the right to tell us how to live? Jesus does. How does Jesus tell us? Through his word. That's everything that we need. We're not going to get more. He speaks to us through his word. And his word is all that we need. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.